is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. This is our first episode after five years of Going West. Thank you, everybody, again so much. And also thank you to Tisha and Justin for recommending today's case. I'm sure a lot of others have recommended it, maybe under a misspelling or something, and that's why I missed it. But thank you anyway. This case recently saw some resolution, so we thought it was the perfect time to dive into it. Yes, happy 2024, everybody. Hope you're having a great year so far. Today's case is a Pacific Northwest case, which obviously you guys probably know. Daphne and I love to cover those cases. So without further ado, this is episode 370 of Going West. So let's get into it. December of 1991, a 16-year-old Washington girl was found murdered in a field next to her high school by a couple of boys, who also got a look at the man behind the crime. But as police papered the composite across town and evaluated thousands of tips, a shocking revelation would come in the form of genealogical DNA testing. This is the story of Sarah Yarborough. Sarah Louise Yarborough was born on June 12, 1975 to parents Laura and Tom Yarborough, and she had three siblings, brothers John and Andrew, and sister Jennifer. Now, some sources state that Sarah was born in Portland, Oregon, while others say that she was born in Seattle, Washington. But either way, the tight-knit Yarborough family eventually settled into the charming city of Federal Way, Washington, which became an incorporated city just a year before this story takes place, meaning that it has its own elected city officials. Federal Way is located 25 miles south of Seattle and just eight miles north of the city of Tacoma, And obviously, it is surrounded by Pacific Northwest beauty, including stunning mountain views. Here in Federal Way, Sarah's father, Tom, worked as an electrical engineer, and her mom, Laura, who worked for the same company called Warehouser, worked as a nurse. Sarah grew up in a very loving and religious home. She was creative, active, and had a huge heart. In fact, Sarah's eighth grade English teacher remembered that she played five different characters in a school play about the Holocaust, saying, quote, she put her energy and soul into each part. She carried an aura that seemed to shout out, I'm in love with life. Sarah was also very popular in school, and she had a very close group of friends who remember her bright red hair and fair skin and her magnetic personality, stating that she was, quote, a magical person. Yeah, and this this group of uh, high school friends that she had, 
you know, they were they were extremely tight. Like, I, I'm thinking of the movie Heathers for some reason, even though those were, like, mean girls and these girls weren't. But The nice um, Heathers. <laughs> yeah, they were basically, like, the nice Heathers. They were the popular girls, you know, uh, very charming, and they were such a tight-knit group. Well, also, Sarah was a straight-A student at Federal Way High School, and she really wanted to attend a prestigious college, but she couldn't decide between becoming an engineer like her dad or a museum curator due to her love of history. And she also had big plans to travel, but sadly, Sarah would never get that chance. On Friday, December 13th, 1991... 16-year-old Sarah was in her junior year at Federal Way High School, and she was really excited about this particular weekend for a few different reasons. First, because her parents were out of town attending a soccer game that her brother Andrew was playing in, which meant that she had some teenage freedom and also the house to herself. And second, because the next day, she had a drill team competition for her school. So on that Friday night, Sarah and her friend Amy Perotti did what you might expect two teenage girls to do. They went to a basketball game, they ran by a convenience store to load up on junk food for the night before, you know, grabbing some fast food and heading back to Sarah's house for the evening. Sarah's mom later said, quote, I was reluctant to leave Sarah, but she didn't want to come because she had her whole weekend planned out. She had a friend come over and stay with her that weekend. And that sleepover seemed to be a fairly normal and unremarkable evening, with Sarah's friend Amy stating, quote, We were just 16. We were carefree. There was absolutely nothing that would make any of us think that the next morning, everything would change. And of course, they live in a safe area. She is 16 years old. She is super mature. Her parents shouldn't have to worry about leaving her. And the fact that something happened during this circumstance is just like one in a million almost. Yeah, and the weirdest part is the fact that, you know, nothing happened that night. It was the next day that this whole thing unraveled. Well, the next morning, which was Saturday, December 14th, 1991, Sarah woke up in a bit of a panic. She confessed to her friend Amy that she had slept in and was going to be late for her drill team practice. So she raced around the house, gathering her uniform and just bolting out the door with a jug of orange juice in her hand and hot rollers still in her hair. Like she was in a huge rush to make sure that she could make it to practice. Now, a witness noted seeing Sarah pull into the back parking lot of Federal Way High School at 8, 10 a.m. and park her car there. But nobody witnessed Sarah get out of her car that morning they had only seen the car itself. Now, granted, this was a Saturday morning, so there weren't very many people around anyway to witness Sarah exiting her car. That Saturday morning was very cold with temperatures hovering around 32 degrees Fahrenheit with a slight frost. So at 8.20 a.m., another witness noticed that Sarah's car engine was still warm and had steam coming off the hood. Now, this may not seem like a very important detail, but it does help us put together a timeline for the events that would follow. Yeah, because obviously if her car, if the car is still steaming, then that means she hasn't been there that long. Well, and somebody else saw her at 810, so we can kind of, you know, ascertain that 810 she arrived and her car was still cooling down 10 minutes later. Yes. But the problem with this situation was that Sarah had actually not been late but she had been early, so she thought that she was due to be at school at 7.30. But the bus that Sarah was going to take with her drill team wouldn't be departing until 9 a.m. 
This bus was supposed to take the drill team to Juanita High School, which is located in Kirkland, Washington, just about 40 minutes north of Federal Way. At approximately 9.15 a.m. that Saturday morning, a 13-year-old local boy named Andrew Miller and a friend of his who has never been publicly named were skateboarding near the Federal Way High School campus when they decided to take a shortcut through the school property near the tennis courts. Now, this particular area does not look like it did in 1991, but back in 1991, near the tennis courts, were a row of dense and tall bushes. Basically, there's like this um, black-topped driveway, and then on the side of that is like a slight hill with a bunch of like tall brush. So Andrew and his friend were stomping the ice that was frozen in the potholes of the paved pathway next to these dense bushes, when they noticed something that felt kind of odd. A strange man popped up from the bushes near them and stood there for a moment, just staring the boys down before turning and walking away from the area in the direction that the boys were headed. Now, obviously very confused to see someone appear from the bushes, especially at 9 a.m., the boys felt creeped out, but also curious as to why this strange man had just been hiding there in the bushes. So the boys approached the area that the man had been standing, and what they saw next would horrify them for the rest of their lives. Among the thick, tall bushes was the body of a teenage girl. She was partially nude with a pair of brown nylon stockings tied tightly around her neck. This young woman's blue jacket, her undergarments, and her bra had all been removed, and the name on the jacket was Sarah. And I mean, what are the chances that they would happen to be skateboarding in this exact area and see this creeper just pop out of the brush and then decide to investigate and that's what they find? Like the chances of that happening when there is nobody around are so freaking slim. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this this poor boy, Andrew, and his and his buddy, you know, they were absolutely horrified by this. Yeah, they were totally shocked obviously anybody would be so they raced home to tell their parents right away now one of the adults called 911 to report this gruesome discovery while another escorted the boys back to the crime scene police arrived to the scene shortly after and discovered sarah yarborough's body just 300 feet from the car that she had drove to school that very morning So this just shows how she didn't make it far at all when she did get out of her car that morning to go to practice. But what investigators couldn't figure out was how Sarah ended up in that area in the first place. So they surmised that she had been either dragged to the bushes by her killer or that she had been lured there. People who knew Sarah said that she was very caring and just a very helpful person in general. So had her attacker possibly used some kind of ruse to get her to a secluded area? It was also noted that Sarah had suffered contusions to her jaw and eye, which suggested that maybe her killer had punched her, knocking her unconscious before dragging her to where she was eventually strangled. Well, investigators didn't have much, but they did have two witnesses who could help them create a composite sketch of the man who had taken Sarah Yarbrough's life. 
Now, the man the boys had seen was a white male, about six feet tall, with shoulder-length blonde hair cut into a mullet, wearing a dark trench coat and dark pants. And we're going to post that composite on our socials so you guys can see, along with other photos of this case. So go check that out if you guys want. And also, that composite is uncanny, and you guys will see. The boys also noted that the man had been driving what appeared to be a tan or brown 1970s model Chevy Nova. And this was amazing. I mean, they knew what the guy looked like. They knew what his car looked like. These are incredible things that anybody wants to have in an investigation. So when the crime scene was analyzed and searched for evidence, it was determined that Sarah had not been raped, but there was semen found on her clothing, which would also help us later on. And not so much during this time because it was 1991 and DNA testing was very much in its infancy. But investigators did have the foresight to collect the perpetrator's DNA in the hopes that one day scientific advancements would lead them to a killer if they didn't catch him in the meantime. Now, aside from that DNA evidence, nothing else was left behind by Sarah's attacker. So police really had to lean on the public and the composite sketch that they had to track this piece of shit down. But first, police had to break the tragic news to Sarah's family that their beloved sister and daughter had been murdered. And again, you can only imagine how horrible they felt. They were leaving her alone and, and they thought that everything was going to be okay. How could something happen in that short span of time when they were just going to her brother's soccer game? Like, just absolutely unthinkable. Yeah, and you know, a lot of residents that lived in Federal Way at the time said that this was kind of a turning point for them. Um, they basically said that Federal Way had always been one of those places where you could leave your door unlocked, but after this crime, everything changed. Sarah's mom, Laura, recalled that tragic day saying, quote, when we got there, that was when they told us her body had been found. Her death left us broken. We've never been the same. My husband and I have three years that are a blank. They're just gone. Our lives went from full color to fuzzy gray. Sarah's younger brother, Andrew, who was just 11 years old when her life was taken, echoed this by saying, quote, I recall the pain in my father's voice over the phone, telling me that Sarah was dead. I recall the sounds of my parents crying through the walls at night as I laid in my bed. On December 20th, so six days after Sarah was murdered, a memorial was held to honor her memory with about 1,200 friends and family members congregating in the Bible Baptist Church in Auburn, Washington to share stories and mourn their loss. Sarah's youth pastor proclaimed, quote, Literally, the whole community is grieving. Her life touched us all in some way. Sarah was a special gal. But not only was the community grieving this tragic loss, but they were also on high alert because a predator was still on the loose, and many wondered if this was an isolated attack or if other unsuspecting victims would follow. One classmate of Sarah's remarked, quote, School isn't supposed to be like this, with everyone afraid and wondering and just scared all the time. School is supposed to be safe, but ours isn't right now. And obviously because nobody felt safe at this time, the varsity wrestling team actually escorted the girls' basketball team to and from practice. And I'm sure, obviously, it probably wasn't just the girls' basketball team, but 
this really goes to show you how worried everybody was. Just everybody was on edge. Yeah, nobody knew who did this or why it happened. And especially with these young people and the fact that they're watching out for each other is really amazing in this in this town where things like this just don't happen. Well, and a lot of Sarah's friends that she went to school with, you know, they looked at that composite sketch and they're basically flipping through the yearbook going, you know, is it could it be this person? Could it be this person? Was it a person who had graduated the year before and, you know, was like hanging around the high school still? Like they assumed that it was somebody that everybody knew, like, right. you know, like but, a classmate. But they just had no idea. And just by the way, that year, the population of Federal Way was around 67 or 68,000 people. So it's not the smallest town, but it's also not huge. Yeah, necessarily. It's, it's, it's not massive. Right. So along with the posters of the composite sketch just papered across town, police began to conduct interviews with witnesses and more than 4,000 tips came flooding in during the early days of the investigation. Everyone held out hope that the person responsible for this brutal crime would be apprehended very quickly. Like I said, especially because they, they have a composite of the guy. They know what his car looks like. But sadly, that just wasn't the case. Sarah's grandfather, John Holmquest, who worked as a senior scientist for Warehouser, loaned $150,000 worth of computer equipment to the police department in order to simplify the process of analyzing this case. But it appeared that nothing was bringing investigators any closer to catching Sarah's killer. They even administered blood tests to local men who matched the description of the perpetrator to see if their DNA matched the killers. But unfortunately, none of them were a match. And there was one person of interest in this case who was never publicly named that the police said was very promising and had been implicated by more than 17 different people, including someone from his own family. But again, there was no match. Like even when they felt they were very, very close, they just weren't hitting the nail. I mean, they were hitting a roadblock at this point. Even though they were working super, super hard. So with nowhere else to turn and, you know, every lead and tip followed up on extensively, King County investigators and Sarah's family were just left to wait out this endless nightmare, just hoping that someday DNA technology would advance to the point that it would lead them in the right direction. Sarah's case at this point had now gone cold. A year after Sarah's death, the Yarborough's neighbor, Bill Fuller, whose daughter was good friends with Sarah and who also worked with Sarah's father and grandfather, decided to create a tribute for her with the help of local students. Sarah's classmates raised and donated $5,000 to put towards a memorial concrete bench that would depict a bronze stack of books with a pair of ballerina slippers on top. It would also include a statue of Sarah's beloved dog, Gibby, standing with its front paws on the bench. And the words that were inscribed on the bench were carpe diem, meaning seize the day, words that Sarah lived her life by. The memorial bench was revealed in early June of 1993 by Bill Fuller and Sarah's younger brother, Andrew, with a crowd of Sarah's classmates standing by to celebrate her life. A week later on June 12th, 1993, emotions were running very high as it would have been Sarah's graduation day from Federal Way High School and even more heartbreaking, it would have been Sarah's 18th birthday. 
Sarah's mom, Laura, was in attendance to support Sarah's friends, kids that considered her a second mother. Unfortunately, there would be no further leads in the case for another 18 years. Exactly, because 18 years after her graduation and about 20 years after her murder in 2011, after the unknown male DNA that had been collected from Sarah's body had been entered into CODIS without any matches, detectives decided that it was time to think outside of the box and try a very new and fairly untested method. They sought the help of a woman named Colleen Fitzpatrick, a forensic scientist who had led the way for forensic genetic genealogy testing. Now, most of you know what genetic genealogy is. We've talked about it a lot on this show, but for those who don't, it is the process of combining DNA testing with traditional genealogical methods to identify biological relationships and trace ancestral lines. Now, this again was fairly new at the time, But detectives felt like it was the key to solving Sarah's case because they weren't getting a match in CODIS. So they reached out to Colleen, just hoping that she would be able to take the unknown DNA and compare it to online public DNA databases to try and make a familial connection. And to their surprise, Colleen was able to come up with a name. And the name she came up with was Fuller. Now, obviously, this was very interesting because we've already talked about a Fuller in this episode. Heath mentioned Bill Fuller, the Yarborough's next-door neighbor, who had also been the creator of Sarah's memorial bench. But the name Fuller was actually traced all the way back to the 1600s to a man named Robert Fuller, who had immigrated to the United States on the Mayflower. But still, investigators had to look into this, and when they did... They quickly realized that Bill Fuller simply did not match the composite sketch or the profile of the killer. Like, Bill was short, unlike the killer, and he was 48 years old in 1991, so the age didn't match up either with the description that the witnesses gave to the police. Because the killer would have been in his mid-20s or so. And on top of this, Bill's DNA was not a match to the killer's DNA, so he was officially ruled out. But what's interesting about this is that there's going to be a bit of a twist. I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories, so why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning, or driving, because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, and they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites like ours that you guys can listen to. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. 
Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. rocketmoney.com slash going west. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify has everything that you need to sell in person. I absolutely love Shopify. I launched my coffee company, Elders Coffee, with Shopify in December, and it has been such an amazing process. I seriously could not recommend Shopify more. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. And they really do. So what are you waiting for? Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash going west, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash going west to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash going west. So even though investigators still didn't have the name of the man who had murdered Sarah, they had a very, very promising lead. So now it was time to begin looking at relatives of Bill Fuller to see if maybe a distant relative could be connected. But it would take another seven years to get closer to finding a match. Now in February of 2018, Colleen Fitzpatrick was able to determine that Sarah's killer was of Northern European descent and that he most likely had either green or blue eyes. Then over a year later in September of 2019, Colleen finally was able to narrow down the list to two potential suspects with the last name Nicholas. The suspects actually happened to be brothers named Patrick and Edward Nicholas and the crazy part was that they were actually distant cousins of Bill Fuller, although Bill was unaware that these men even existed. So first, investigators set their sights on Edward, because his DNA was actually in CODIS, so it would be easy enough to test his DNA against the killers to see if it was a possible match. And although Edward was a registered sex offender, which is how his DNA was submitted in the first place, it was determined that it wasn't a precise match. So now it was time to focus their efforts on Patrick Leon Nicholas, Edward's younger brother, who in recent years was a divorced auto parts store employee who people described as being a loner and pretty fucking strange. And he happened to live in Covington, Washington, just 14 miles from Federal Way, where Sarah lived and was ultimately killed. Well, get this, in 1991, Patrick was 27 years old and lived even closer to Federal Way than he did in 2019. Not to mention, Patrick was blonde-haired and blue-eyed, just like the witnesses had described. And if this wasn't enough to keep detectives' interests, they also discovered that back in 1991, Patrick's bus route would pass right by Federal Way High School. But the only problem was that when investigators checked CODIS to see if Patrick's DNA was in the system, they found out that he had never been asked to submit it, despite the fact that he had a lengthy criminal history. Which obviously explains why when they put the DNA of Sarah's killer into CODIS, they didn't find it. So it's, it's just a shame that it wasn't in there previously because they wouldn't have had to jump through all these hoops to get his DNA a different way. You know what I mean? But let's talk about Patrick's criminal history, starting with his rape conviction in 1983. In June of that year, on a peaceful morning, just eight years before Sarah was murdered, 
A 21-year-old woman named Ann Crony was sitting on the banks of the Columbia River enjoying the views when a man who looked to be her age walked up and struck a conversation. The man, who was Patrick Nicholas, although she didn't know his name, of course, explained that he had just moved to town, so Ann asked if he had tried water skiing on the river yet, but Patrick told her that he couldn't swim. After this small interaction, Anne later explained, quote, he seemed normal, kind of friendly, actually, just friendly. But Anne began to feel pretty unnerved when Patrick's voice began to shake, almost like he was anticipating doing something drastic. So on that note, Anne told Patrick that she had to go and began to walk back to her car in the parking lot of Howard Amon Park in Richland, Washington. She was able to get into her driver's seat, but just before she was able to close the door, Patrick came running up with a knife and held it to Anne's throat. Patrick then forced Anne out of her car and demanded that she take her clothes off, stuffing her underwear in her mouth so she couldn't scream before leading her back to the riverbank. About halfway there, Patrick told Anne to stop and turn around, but Anne was very smart and remembered that Patrick had told her that he couldn't swim. So within an instant, Anne took off sprinting toward the river where she dove in and swam with every ounce of energy that she had. Now, thankfully, she was able to get away and swam back to a nearby dock where very concerned citizens helped her and called 911. I just can't even begin to describe how smart Anne was in this moment. The fact that she remembered, like, that he said, you know, hey, I can't swim. And, like, she devised this plan of, like, how am I going to get away? I'm just going to jump into the water. This motherfucker can't swim. And that is how I'm going to get away. Like, so, so genius. Well, and the fact that they have, in their very, very short conversation, that they happen to even go there, talk about water, and the fact that he even mentioned that he couldn't swim is crazy. So just absolutely amazing that she was able to get away. Now, Patrick was 19 at this time, but police discovered that this was not the first time that he had had a run-in with the law. As a juvenile, he had already raped two other women and had attempted to rape a third before crossing paths with Anne Crony. Now, what's even more disturbing is that Patrick had been released from a juvenile detention center less than 90 days before he attacked Anne, meaning that, you know, this guy was already in prison and he gets out and he's doing the same shit. Which we see all the time and it's so disappointing. Yeah, so Patrick was eventually arrested and he pled guilty to first degree rape on July 29th, 1983 and was sentenced to 10 years in a Washington state prison. Before being sentenced though, Patrick made a statement to the court saying, quote, I realize that I have a problem with raping girls. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, this guy is so unhinged. And this part is about to piss everybody off because Patrick only ended up serving three and a half years of his 10-year sentence, meaning that he should have still been in prison on that cold December 14th morning if he had served his full term. Meaning that Sarah would have been alive if he had served his full term, which he should have, especially if you go to prison and you get out and you offend again, and then you admit in court that you have a problem with raping girls and you get let, why are you let out early? 
Yeah, I honestly just, I, I don't understand this, but that's not all that this piece of shit did. Because in 1993, Patrick Nicholas was convicted of sexually molesting his six-year-old stepdaughter, which he pled guilty to a fourth-degree charge of gross misdemeanor assault. Well, now investigators knew that Patrick was more than capable of committing horrible acts, but was he the right guy? Well, King County assigned two undercover detectives to follow Patrick in hopes that they could obtain some form of his DNA to test against the DNA that they already had. The detectives started surveilling Patrick outside of a laundromat in Kent, Washington, where they watched him step outside to smoke a cigarette and drop the butt on the ground. But that wasn't all he left behind because he had also accidentally dropped a napkin that he had stored in his pocket on the ground before heading back inside to the laundromat. And this was the break investigators needed. So they raced over and grabbed the cigarette butt and the napkin and placed the items into evidence. Obviously, it would take some time before the results of those items and the seminal DNA sample could come back. But when it did, it was a one and quadrillion match. So police finally had their guy and Patrick Nicholas was arrested on October 19th, 2019, 28 years after Sarah Yarbrough's murder. Patrick was arrested at a Kent sports bar and was taken into custody without incident. But as detectives began to interview Patrick, they came to the realization that he could have been responsible for more unsolved murders in his long criminal career. While sitting in the interview room, detectives said, quote, we're investigating the death of a young girl. Her name is Sarah Yarborough. And to the investigator's surprise, Patrick asked, quote, what year? Then he refused to speak any further and demanded an attorney. Yeah, and that's just so eerie because the fact that he's saying what year, it's like, well, did you have anything to do with murders on a different year? Yeah, or? like if you're not a murderer, that's not the question you ask. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who that is. I've never killed somebody. You don't say, when was that? Let me just go through my catalog of people I've killed. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that was kind of what was going through investigators' minds. So in one of the most disturbing revelations in this case, when investigators searched Patrick's home, they found a newspaper article from 1994 detailing Sarah's murder, and they also found a magazine picture of a cheerleader in his kitchen drawer among loads of pornographic material. And remember, Sarah was a part of the drill team, and she was murdered in her drill team uniform. Which have a lot of similarities to the types of outfits that cheerleaders wear. Exactly. And, you know, it's just unbelievable that he would still have this newspaper from 1994. I mean, this obviously just really seals the deal here. It's like, they already have his DNA. They've already got, you know, his description um, from the past and those matched up. And now it's like, you've got a newspaper from 1994 of Sarah's murder. Like Still to this day? Yeah, like you're the guy. Investigators also noted that Patrick Nicholas was basically a hoarder living in filth without working electricity and boxes and trash just stacked everywhere. So. This was just a disgusting human being all around. So 59-year-old Patrick Leon Nicholas's trial began on April 17th, 2023. And I imagine that, um, you know, his trial was pushed off because of COVID. And his trial took place at the Norm Malang Regional Justice Center in Kent, Washington, where he faced three charges. 
two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder, all for the same crime but differing on why he committed it. Sarah's brother Andrew remarked, quote, Over the life of this convicted murderer, he does not possess the ability to experience remorse or feel emotions the way normal people do. He does not belong in the free society with the rest of the people in this room. So the jurors deliberated for nearly a day and a half before finally convicting Patrick to first-degree murder with intent to commit rape and second-degree murder, which accused Patrick of killing Sarah in the course of attempting to the crime of indecent liberties against her. But obviously, for some reason, the jury didn't believe that Sarah's murder had been premeditated, so for that charge, he was found not guilty. All of Sarah's friends and family were in attendance to watch her murderer be sentenced, including one of Patrick's other known victims, Anne Crony, as well as Andrew Miller, who was the boy that discovered Sarah's body. Now, Anne Crony spoke at his trial, stating, quote, The system failed. It really failed. He should have been locked up. When Patrick was released in 1987 after his attempted rape conviction and sentence, the court stated, quote, He did not have any major infractions while in prison and did not have a drug or alcohol problem and would be safe to be at large given an ongoing therapeutic relationship and parole supervision. Yeah, right. But it's like, obviously, this guy messed up so many times in his life, and they're like, oh, well, you don't have a drug and alcohol problem, so you don't seem like you're a danger to society. But from his own mouth, he has a problem with raping girls, so how is that not enough? Yeah, and the thing here is that, you know, he was supposed to be going through, like, this therapeutic relationship and parole supervision, but if he ever joined an outpatient sex offender treatment program or not is basically still a mystery. Like, nobody knows if he had to go through that treatment or not. Patrick Nicholas was sentenced on May 10th, 2023 to 45 years and eight months in prison for Sarah's murder and will likely never see freedom ever again. At 59 years of age currently, his release date would be 2069 at the age of 105. So I don't, I don't know that he's going to make that long. Patrick was also ordered to pay restitution to the Yarborough family, but the amount has yet to be determined. Sarah's mother, Laura, spoke of Patrick's sentencing, quote, The trial's like a marathon. It's a slog. I didn't realize it was going to be quite this draining or exhausting or go on so long. But she did find peace in knowing that Patrick Nicholas would never be able to hurt anyone else ever again. So it was a very bittersweet display of justice, but nowadays, Laura can't hear her daughter's voice in her own head anymore. Sarah's family added that they are eternally grateful to every investigator who had worked on Sarah's case over the course of 30 plus years, and that Sarah's legacy of love that she left behind will never be forgotten. Thank you 
so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. I'm so glad that this story finally got justice and that police kept pushing to get that DNA match and use modern technology to do so. It's just such a shame that her family had to sit for so many years in this town not knowing who amongst them was their daughter and their sister's killer. And, you know, obviously I know it's this guy's job to defend Patrick Nicholas, but the guy that was defending him in court was basically just trying to, like, dog on uh, genetic genealogy, saying that it's untested and it's unreliable and can't be trusted. But, you know, there's no other way around this. I mean, this guy was responsible for that crime, and I'm so glad that he was finally put away after so, so many years. Me too. So thank you guys so much for listening to this one. Again, thank you everybody who recommended today's case, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger.